Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And today we're going to be talking about social activism in relation to appearance-related concerns. We're going to be hearing from two prominent activists in the body image space, Sharon Hayward and Sigmund Danielsdotter, to find out more about their work. We decided to talk about social activism in today's episode because we've recently attended a training school on the topic as part of a cost action group on appearance, an EU networking initiative bringing together researchers from across Europe. The Centre for Appearance Research leads this cost action group, which today has over 200 members from 36 countries. The action aims to tackle the consequences of appearance dissatisfaction through networking and coordinating EU research and practice. The action is funded by the European Cooperation in Science and Technology, which is connected to the EU framework programme Horizon 2020. One part of this four-year collaboration project involves training schools, which in the past have covered topics including preventing appearance dissatisfaction, assessing appearance dissatisfaction in marginalised and socially disadvantaged groups, and most recently, social activism. The training school on social activism took place in Bristol and was led by our two guests, Sharon Hayward and Sigrun Daniels-Dotter, as well as Philippa Deirdrix from CAR. We were going to introduce the topic of social activism ourselves. What is it? Who does it? Why do it? But leading body image activist Sharon Hayward did this at the Cost Action Training School, and she's very kindly allowed us to share a short clip from her introductory talk. Before we play the clip, a little bit about Sharon. Sharon is a writer and editor from Canada, and has been a body image activist since 2009. She founded Anybody Argentina, the Argentinian chapter of Endangered Bodies, an international movement which challenges the culture that fosters body hatred. Sharon regularly publishes articles and essays in English and Spanish on the subjects of body image, violence against women and feminism in outlets such as Horizons, Canada's leading feminist magazine, and as a columnist on an online supplement of Clarin, Argentina's largest newspaper. Great, let's hear the clip. So, what is social activism? Social activism is essentially taking action with the intention of causing specific social change. And social activism is rooted in what's known as social justice, the belief that every person receives equal economic, political, and social rights and opportunities. Um, So what does activism do? There's generally three purposes related to activism. Um, They can be all three, or it can be one or a combination of. One, activism raises awareness regarding your issue. It mobilizes people to act, and it demands and ideally generates specific change. Just a quick note, the activism that I've been involved in and that we're going to be talking about is called grassroots activism. Um, So basically, the the definition of grassroots means ordinary people regarded as the main body of the organization. So it's all, everybody's on the same level. There's not a top-down or a hierarchy involved. It tends to slow down action. Okay, so we're going to start with digital activism because it's inescapable today. Regardless of whether your campaign is online or not, digital activism is going to play a part and should play a part. Um, And if it weren't for online technology, I'm fairly certain that I wouldn't be an activist today. Um, It's a really easy way to kind of slide into the role of an activist without having to kind of put yourself out there and kind of jump into the fray. So we're going to take a look at uh, the commonly used tools for digital activism. Online petitions are a really, really powerful tool. 
I generally would recommend these three platforms, change.org, avaz.org, and the care to petition site. Social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, um, needs to be involved in any campaign that you're running on the ground or online. Twitter and Tumblr are also considered social media, but they're also fall under the category of microblogging, which is essentially a message is conveyed using very little text, such as with Twitter, where you have, you're limited to 140 characters. And other tools involved are blogs, images, podcasts. So we're going to be going through these tools, but before we do, I just want to talk very briefly about communication. When I lift emails, listservs, private Facebook groups, those are tools for digital activism as well. Um, successful organizing requires really clear communication among your colleagues and activists. So just quickly, if you've got more than three people, three people or more involved in um, a, an activist campaign, get together with a Google group. That way you don't have to worry about um, emails being dropped and you can, you can access all your, your information quite easily. Facebook groups are really, really useful, I find, with organizing behind the scenes. There are three different kinds of Facebook groups, open, closed, and secret. I would highly recommend getting a secret Facebook group going if you've got any kind of digital activism, any kind of campaigning you're doing online, especially on Facebook. It's a group that my team uses in Argentina. Um, we manage our Facebook page that way, which is also an awareness raising technique. It doesn't seem like a lot of work, but it, it is when you want to kind of get the right content out. So it's something we do as a team and I use it with other groups as well. So you might want to look into both of those tools if you haven't used them before. Okay, so I'm going to start with the most successful digital activist campaign that I've been involved with, and it was through the organization Endangered Bodies. Um, Endangered Bodies is an international organization that was founded in 2011, and it was founded by Susie Orbach. Um, she's a pioneer in the area of food and bodies. Um, she wrote Fat as a Feminist Issue, and she's written 10 books since. She founded the um, UK chapter of Endangered Bodies, also referred to as Anybody based out of London, and in 2011, we managed to launch five different chapters. Currently, we have seven chapters throughout the world in major cities. Um, the mission of Endangered Bodies is to challenge the toxic culture um, that teaches us to hate our own bodies. We recognize that most people are uncomfortable in their own skin at best, and we want future generations to grow up without feeling that angst in their body and be able to live and enjoy um, being in their bodies. We deal with local issues in our specific areas as well as we tackle international campaigns. Some of our groups have charity and nonprofit status. Most of us don't. Some of them receive, actually one team receives semi-regular donations, um, but most of us run on zero funds and lots of passion. So um, we're really proud in March 2015, we were successful in having Facebook remove the I feel fat emoticon. Why did we ask Facebook to do this? Basically to push back against the demonization of fat and the weight stigma and the discrimination that goes with it. We know fat is an adjective like tall and short, but in no way is it a neutral adjective. Fat is often used to shame oneself or shame other people. And we know that fat talk and that kind of body shaming has um, negative effects on body image. When we were looking into doing this campaign, we realized that Facebook has five core values, and one of those values is building social value. And we realized, or we pointed out to Facebook, that um, having these body shaming emoticons like I feel fat, another one that we asked them to remove is I feel ugly, ran contrary to that social value. So I've given you the outcome of this campaign, so we're going to backtrack and look at where it all started. 
Back in October of 2014, one of the members of the Anybody UK team discovered the I Feel Fat emoticon. Um, so we discussed it as a team in London and then opened it up to our international group. And we decided we're going to raise awareness through a Twitter party. All you need is a hashtag, a date, and a time. Usually Twitter parties last an hour. And it's a way to generate a conversation. Anybody who's tweeting is going to use that hashtag and they're going to engage in conversation. They can ask questions. Um, it's a really exciting and fast-paced way to, to have conversations with a, a wide group of people. So we put out this simple flyer on October 19th. We wanted to open up a conversation about fat talk inspired by Facebook's choice to offer fat and ugly as feelings in user status and in honor of Body Confidence Week. So we also paired it with a, a Body Confidence Week where the awareness of these issues is already heightened. So we were, after this Twitter party, um, we decided we wanted to run a petition, um, but we weren't quite sure how to do it because at the time we had eight different chapters, um, four different languages, and we weren't sure how are we gonna do this. So we enlisted the, uh, the help of change.org. And with their help, we were able to launch eight different petitions throughout the world that were all linked together. So whether you were in Brazil or Australia or Germany, every signature went into one final total, which was really, really helpful. We didn't even know that that could be done. Um, change.org was really adamant that each petition face, um, was led by one petition starter and was led with a personal story. What we wanted to do, uh, because we, we knew about Fat Talk and we knew about the evidence, we were really keen on creating petition text that talked about that evidence and talked about the, the negative effects. Um, and Change said, no, you need to have a personal story because people are, need to identify with somebody's story and it really made a huge difference in terms of attracting signatures. So um, the petition starters, half of them were involved with local teams of endangered bodies and the other half, such as my group in Argentina, we didn't have anybody appropriate to start the petition. We wanted somebody who um, was fairly young. We wanted it to be a woman. So what we did is we put a call out on our Facebook page looking for a spokesperson for our next international campaign. So without giving out any information about what we were going to do. We received quite a few responses and in a few days we were able to choose a really awesome petition starter. So in addition to these eight petitions, they, we also um, created five different videos. And it's really important any campaign that you run that you have engaging, dynamic, bite-sized pieces of visuals, of videos for people to kind of consume. Putting out text really isn't enough. I mean, it can be, but you're going to attract a lot more interest to your campaign if you've got engaging visuals to go with it. No, and I should mention that we weren't always only petitioning um, the removal of I Feel Fat. Um, we were also petitioning the removal of the I Feel Ugly emoticon. So it was both of them that we were doing. Other tools that we use, Twitter, Facebook, our blog, always using the hashtag so people could follow the conversation. While we were promoting it, we also cited research um, that supported our ask. Uh, as you think about those three issues I asked you to identify at the beginning, um, also think about the different evidence um, and the different work that's being done by your colleagues and yourself that could support a specific ask for a campaign. Um, it didn't take very long for the press to start rolling in. It actually only took a few days, um, which we weren't expecting. We discovered what it's like to be involved in a viral campaign. It was exciting, it was chaotic. We found that we had planned to actually release a press release um, a few days after we had launched the campaign, once we had garnered some signatures, and we didn't even have time. Um, we got swept up in, in, in all the, the signatures and the press. Um, I wouldn't recommend that. So if you're going to launch any campaign, 
Um, have a press release ready to go, even if you're not going to release the press release on the, on the launch date. Um, if you need to leave certain pieces of information blank, that's fine, uh, but have one ready to go. Also have a press release ready to go uh, for when you win your campaign, because it's, it, it's incredible how quickly things can happen, um, and it's a really important part if you want the media to be engaged. Without the media, um, it's really hard to get to that victory stage. So after two weeks, we garnered 16,000 signatures and we were thrilled to declare our campaign a success. Facebook shared um, this message directly with uh, change.org. Uh, we've heard from our community that listing feeling fat as an option for status updates could reinforce negative body image, particularly for people struggling with eating disorders. So we're going to remove feeling fat from the list of options. We'll continue to listen to feedback as we think about ways to help people express themselves on Facebook. So not only did Facebook remove the I feel fat emoticon, they also opened up a dialogue with us and invited them to be advisors for them on issues relating to body image. Um, so it really was an exciting victory for us. So just to recap, um, we had the problem of body shaming status updates on Facebook. Um, our goal was to have Facebook remove the I feel fat and the feeling ugly status updates. The action, our fat is not a feeling petition, supported through strong social media efforts. And the outcome, the feeling fat emoji was removed and it re created a relationship um, with Facebook as advisors. So just reviewing our campaign using the three purposes of activism, it demanded and achieved um, specific change, it mobilized people by getting them to act and sign the petition, and it raised awareness via global conversation about the demonization of fat and fat stigma. Okay, I'm just gonna give you some tips. Um, again, we've talked about targeting a specific ask. You don't want to make it too general. Um, so when you're asking the decision makers, you want to be able to give them something concrete they can respond to. Featuring a personal story, again, um, you want to have people who are reading the petition um, to be able to identify with the petition starter and, and relate it to their own life. Emphasizing, again, creating original images and videos are just going to increase um, the attention that the petition gets, as well as attract uh, the attention of the everyday public. Creating a catchy hashtag, as we've seen with the Fat is Not a Feeling campaign, hashtags can make a really big difference. Consider your audience when you're writing your, your petition text. Do your best to avoid jargon and technical terms, and if you need to, to include that, you know, include kind of a translation in layman's terms. You want people to understand what you're talking about. Sometimes we just assume we're, we're so embedded in the issues that we work, we work with that we forget that um, the everyday person may not be in tune um, to these issues as we are. And please avoid large caps. I, it's amazing how many petitions I see with large caps and it's really not, um, it's not good from an accessibility point, point of view. And the most important point is do your best to connect with a representative from the platform you're using and try to forge a relationship. Online petition sites are not um, heavily staffed, but if you can develop a relationship with them and get their support because they have mail outs and they have you know, thousands and thousands of people on their Twitter and their Facebook pages so they can disseminate your petition in a way that you probably won't be able to reach as many people. That was Sharon Hayward introducing social activism at the Cost Action Training School on social activism in Bristol. Our next guest is Sigrun Danielsdotter from Iceland. Sigrun is a clinical psychologist and is the project manager for mental health promotion at the Directorate of Health in Iceland. Sigrun is founding president of the Icelandic Eating Disorders Association, as well as the Icelandic Association for Body Respect. 
her work and research focuses on mental health promotion, body image, weight stigma, and weight neutral approaches to health and well-being. Sigrun is also the author of the children's book, Your Body is Brilliant, Body Respect for Children, which has been published in several countries across the world. Sigrun also leads the Cost Action EU Task Group on Social Activism, so we are very excited to be able to have a quick chat with her at the recent Cost Action Training School. Okay, Sigrun, thank you so much for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. First off, why do you think social activism is important when it comes to appearance? Well, we're getting so many messages about appearance, as it is, and most of them leave us with the feeling that there's something wrong with us, something wrong with our appearance, and so many people, businesses, actually have a vested interest in keeping us dissatisfied. So there's really a need for some kind of counteraction to sort of neutralize all the negative messages that we're getting. And dissatisfaction with our bodies and appearance um, really have a negative impact on our emotional health and well-being and even, even our physical health. So it's very important to try to change the landscape and the cultural climate that we live in and that our children is, are growing up in so that they can feel um, comfortable in their skin and feel good about who they are growing mm-hmm. up. Great, thank you. Um, so you gave an excellent talk on weight stigma at the Cost Action Training School. Can you tell us a little bit about what weight stigma is and why we need to try and combat weight stigma? Right. So weight stigma is really just another form of social stigma, social injustice. And it's a very pervasive one and to a large extent a socially sanctioned form of social injustice that affects a large part of the population in a very harmful way. So being stigmatized has serious consequences for um, not only people's social status and the opportunities they get because people are discriminated against in in educational settings, employment, healthcare, etc, etc, but also of course has a negative impact on people's emotional well-being, has direct effects on people's physical health again via chronic stress and the impact that being stigmatized has on your behavior and just quality of life in general. So regarding weight stigma, we're actually at much of a starting point regarding the fight against this kind of social injustice in that we're still at that point in history where we're having to convince people in the first place that and present arguments that weight prejudice is actual prejudice it's real Mm. and it's valid as a social justice issue because a lot of people still think it's okay to have anti-fat attitudes and behaviors and they don't see it as prejudice or bigotry they just see it as justified beliefs and behaviors Mm -hmm. yeah completely great So I know you do a great deal of social activism work in Iceland concerning appearance-related issues. Can you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Yes, very happy to describe that. Um, I talked a little bit about it um, at the presentation Mm -hmm. yesterday. So what we've been working on, the Association for Body Respect in Iceland, since this summer is a photo expedition and social media campaign regarding the sort of the concept of the obesity epidemic. So the whole obesity epidemic discourse that we've been sort of living with for the past 20 years 
has created and presented and maintained this very, very negative image of higher weight people. So our intention was to contrast this, for example, to contrast the negative stigmatizing and dehumanizing imagery that we see in the media with people who have no faces, they're just presented as an isolated body part, like a stomach or a, or a bottom, etc. And we wanted to contrast this with just regular people whose BMI would fall into this quote-unquote obesity epidemic weight range. And it's been, the, the project was launched earlier this, it was on October 8th. So it's, we're just really in the middle of this campaign right now. And it's been very, very positively received. It's a real eye-opener to people to realize that when we say that 60%, like in Iceland, 60% of the, of the population are overweight or obese, to really see what that means. We're just talking about a large part of the nation, regular people, people like you and me, people mm -hmm. like our parents, our children, our siblings, our co-workers, our friends. These are people that we know and that we love. And on a daily basis, it's not something that we associate with terrible health crisis that's ruining our society. So just putting a face to this quote-unquote epidemic and showing people that in real life doesn't present itself the way that we are being taught in the media. Completely. And it was so powerful seeing it yesterday. And we'll make sure we'll include a link in the bio of our podcast notes Perfect. for our listeners to see. So next question, what do you think it takes to be an effective activist? Oh, <laughs> that's a really good question. And that's something that we were actually focusing on today at the earlier part of our training school here in Bristol, is that apparently there is a formula to it. You can actually lay out the steps and sort of be very strategic and very um, sort of yeah, laying out your plan and, and having your eye on the target and, and aiming for success. But for us in Iceland, it hasn't happened that way. It's been very sort of, it's been more spontaneous, a very creative process, very mindful of, we really only have like a handful of activists in Iceland who are really interested in doing things to change the culture. So we've been very mindful of not sort of over-tasking our group and, and not putting an overload regarding having meetings, developing a strategy, doing all the sort of groundwork, but rather just having a very interesting idea and just going ahead with it. So what it takes to be an, a successful activist, mm -hmm. of course, depends on the context. And for sure, it's going to benefit you're going to benefit from trying to be strategic about it, but you also have to be creative. You also have to have passion. So if there was any one ingredient, I would say passion, because you have to invest so much energy and so much time, and you're never going to, you may not even reap the benefits, not soon, and, and for some people not even in their lifetime, really, with the end goal of equality, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and also just to have fun with it. I think that's a very powerful tool to sort of draw out the ridiculousness of 
discrimination and the prejudiced views because when you strip them down, they usually expose themselves as being really very stupid and very ridiculous and very nonsensical. So if you play with that a little bit, you can get people on board because people don't want to associate themselves with stupid views or stupid (laughs) ideas. So that can be a very fun approach. Yeah, completely. And I think that's what really came across yesterday when you were talking about all of the things that you've been doing in Iceland. It's the energy and the enthusiasm and the passion and and the fun that you're having doing this work because it's largely unpaid and, you know, you're doing this on top of, you know, multiple other things. So I think they're really important ingredients to to this kind of work. And also people get tired of criticism, Mm -hmm. you know. So if you're approaching society with all these sort of negative messages about this is a problem, this is a problem, we need to fix this problem, 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 problem. Mm -hmm. It can often be effective, but it can also be a very boring discussion. Okay, so last question. What do you say the priority is for appearance-related social activism at the moment? If I just think about this regarding where our activism in Iceland has been focused, I would say that the biggest challenge for us not only in Iceland, I regard that as a very much a priority in just fighting weight stigma in general, is to get the health authorities on board. Mm-hmm. Because what's difficult in fighting weight stigma is that the whole discourse, being fat is a negative thing, fat people pose a threat to society, we've seen all kinds of statements where, you know, fat people are overburdening the healthcare system, fat Mm -hmm. people are, you know, a social liability, a burden on society, and it's a very, very negative, stigmatizing, judgmental discourse, and can actually be linked to the whole health discourse. So the message is really the same as coming from health authorities that that carry a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. The World Health Organization, for example, um, and, and like I, I explained yesterday, the whole war on obesity that has sort of unleashed this whole dehumanizing, stigmatizing approach in the media was launched by health authorities. So as long as they keep feeding into this discussion, it's going to be very difficult to counteract because people view it as very valid. And even, I mean, we've heard arguments and criticisms to our activism that we are being irresponsible we're doing Mm -hmm. something very harmful by telling people that they are okay as they are that they are valuable and that they um, should hold their head up high and not feel bad about themselves because the idea is that if you're happy with yourself you won't do anything to support your health which is actually not true Mm -hmm. because we have research showing that there's a a relationship between body image and health behaviors in the opposite way. The better that you feel about your body, the more likely you are to take good care of it and feeling shame and um, negative attitudes towards your body is actually providing a barrier for you Mm -hmm. to take good care of yourself. But we still have this whole weight-focused health agenda Mm -hmm. and... That's something that we really have to start working with and try to sort of shift the focus. And I think that's a very doable thing because really when you strip it down, what you're trying to get people to do and what you're trying to mobilize society into focusing on is healthful behavior. 
And you can do that just as well, if not better, without the whole weight focus. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Yale Rudd Center has, has done research with um, sort of getting population views about obesity preventive strategies. And one of the things that's come out of that is that messages about, for example, eating healthy or exercising that do not focus on weight are received more positively by the general public than this whole weight bashing agenda. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I really think that we need to highlight and get the health authorities on board in that. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Sigrun. Thank you for having me. That was Sigrun Danielsdotter talking to Nadia at the Cost Action Training School on social activism, which took place in Bristol this October. And that also brings us to the end of this episode, so a big thank you to both Sharon and Sigrun. If you'd like to find out more about the Cost Action, Sharon and Sigrun's work, and our research centre, you can find the links in this episode's description. Also, please take a moment to review and rate our podcast on iTunes. It really does help to get the podcast out there to more people. And don't forget to give us five stars. Join us next time on Appearance Matters, the podcast, where we will be talking about cosmetic surgery.